Good morning. Good to see everybody. I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll launch into our new teaching series here. Heavenly Father, we declare to you this morning that you are good. We thank you that you love us. Thank you that you died for us. We thank you for the good news of your son Jesus Christ paying the penalty for our sins, the penalty of death. God, I'm so thankful, God. It's so great to be here this morning, Lord. Um, God, I thank you for this location of the Firehouse Church. I pray that you would bless our time this morning, Lord. I thank you for all of the new people who are here, first time, second time, third time. God, I pray that you would meet with each one of us, whether we're new or we've been here a thousand times. I pray that you would have a word for us to hear from you so that we could learn and obey and grow and have a right way of thinking about the good news. Lord, we pray for the south location of the Firehouse Church. God, thank you for the the great outreach event uh, they had last night, that harvest party. Thank you that we even here could be part of that. And God, I pray that you would bless them and help them to um, be really getting the good news out there in that part of town, Lord. Lord, we lift up this time. Uh, We pray that you'd bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as Brad mentioned before, my name is Greg. For those of you who are new, uh, I am one of the pastors here at the Firehouse Church. Uh, Again, it's really just great to see all of you here this morning. Uh, It's fun to be here as a Highlands location. Amen. We kind of kicked out those rabble-rousers and sent them on down to Parker. Um, Thank you guys for, uh, for your commitments to the Thrive campaign. I... It's just like all week, for the past two weeks, I know Brad the same way, Rich, we're just just like laughing, like, really? Like, God, you really raised all this money for us from uh, just working uh, in, in everybody's hearts, and just such a great demonstration of faith. So thank you so much for that. As Brad mentioned, uh, we're never turning down money, right? <laughs> so if you were going to give a pledge, and you weren't here, and you, you hadn't had a chance to, or you were still praying through it, we do still have pledge cards back there. We'll take those anytime. Um, there'll be more details coming up soon, I'm sure, about uh, how to give and when to give and what to mark on your check and those kind of things. But um, for now, I just really want to reemphasize that. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving. Man, we're just so encouraged and blessed. So, in some ways, I was telling somebody last night, I'm so tired of talking about it. I'm ready to just do it. Amen? Let's do it. Right? So... We're starting a brand new teaching series here. We're going to be, as you can see on the screen, uh, we're going to be talking about the book of Galatians. Right? Now, uh, in, in teaching in, in churches, right, there's kind of really two main ways to go. One is sort of a thematic, topical sort of way, and the other is really taking a book of the Bible. And there's always sort of a classic tension between uh, doing those two things. Now, a couple of weeks ago, my family and I were able to go up to this, like, farm, which was aptly named Miller Farms. Didn't have anything to do with me being Miller, but that's what it was called. And so we went up there and we got to pick all these vegetables. We paid a little bit of money and came back with like a bajillion bags of onions. And we were chopping onions for two days. Everybody was crying and stuff. But at one moment there, we, there was a cornfield. They're like, okay, go get some corn. And so I took the little, little three-year-old Kellen and we took off into this corn maze. I'm sure it was, I know some of you are like from Iowa, right? This is not like Iowa corn, right? Like I could touch the top of it, right? In Iowa, it's like the ceiling, right? But, so we're out there, and it's kind of eerie, right? And I'm thinking of my little three-year-old, and he's down there, and, but we're looking for corn, and so, sort of the first 
section, there's not really any corn, and then you get a little further down, and then you start to see corn on the stalks, right? And we're like, ah, okay. But we can only really fill one bag. And so it's like, well, we're going to pick the good ones, right? And so the little guy, he's like, here, Daddy, here's corn, right? And it's like it's like shriveled, or it's on the ground. Someone knocked it off, and we're like, no, no. And so we're sort of picking and choosing as we go the corn that we need, right? So that's one way to harvest corn. What's another way to harvest corn? You'll climb up in the big machine and you just like plow through it, right? And you suck it all in and then you, you have corn, right? So this is a combine. Is that what it's called? I don't know. Farming people, yeah. People from Iowa. You can tell I'm a city guy. But it's, uh, and so I think in some ways, I think there's a parallel to how we can approach scripture, right? And they're both good ways, right? We can go and we can sort of pick this one and that one and this one and we can put them together as long as they're being contextual and, and true to what the text means and we can gather a bunch of corn that way. Or we can get in the combine and just like plow through like a section and, and get what we get. And so right now, this series here for the next is really going to take us all the way through January. We're going to plow through this corn <laughs> of Galatians and see what the book says, the theme. So hopefully you guys enjoy sort of that change of gears. We realized it had been probably at least a year um, since we'd done that. So anyway, um, another thing, people oftentimes ask me, maybe for some of you who are new, even wonder this too, like why is this church called the Firehouse Church? And a lot of people, they look at the front and they go, oh, this must have been an old firehouse. And I can assure you this building was never a firehouse. Um, and that's not actually how we named it. We've been a church for 11 years and we've been in this building five years. And we were called the firehouse before we were in this building. And Lord willing, we'll be called the firehouse long after we're in this building. But um, there's a number of verses in, in scripture uh, that talk about fire. And one of those is in uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 29. It says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord. goes on and he says, And a hammer that breaks a rock to pieces. And so regardless of how we approach scripture in this church, we're going to approach it as it is, which is the word of God. As a, as a fire that can consume and a hammer that can break rock to pieces. And so we're really just going to dive head first into the word here, into Galatians here in the next couple months and just see what God has for us. So uh, let me give you just a little bit of, just a, a real short background on the book of Galatians. It's always nice to have a little bit of context, right, when you start uh, looking at scriptures. So um, the book of Galatians was written by Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, and he wrote it to uh, a group, it's thought to be a group of churches uh, located in Asia Minor. Um, I always wondered what Asia Major is. But I know Asia Minor is really what we would call Turkey today, right? And so he wrote to these churches. Um, uh, the date, most scholars have dated this letter to be right around 50 AD. So still before the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, but not too long um, after the resurrection of Christ. And so Paul's purpose really in writing Galatians was really exhortation. It's really trying to encourage and challenge uh, believers in these churches. And what was he trying to do? Well, he was trying to get them to adhere to the true gospel. The gospel of sanctification by faith and justification by faith. And so, uh, one of the themes that kind of runs through this book is that the gospel brings about new life in all who believe it. And so we're going to talk about this as we go along here in the series. We're going to take maybe, oh... 10 to 15 verses, I say that and of course this week is 9 verses, but 10, about 10 to 15 verses each time, these chunks, and we're going to go through it. So, um, 
Today we're just going to start right here at the very beginning, chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Now I'm going to put it on the screen and I would encourage you, if you've got a Bible handy, you might want to pull it open and, and follow along or if you've got your Bible app on your phone, um, you can always follow along there as well too. We are a technology-friendly church for sure. So I'll just read this to us. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And so Paul really introduces this whole letter, and he kind of dives right into it, doesn't he? There's really three things there he really, he really goes into. He talks about his authority, he talks about his message, and he talks about the problem. So it's really a great place for us to start. And we're going to sort of follow those three things generally. But um, first today, um, I want to talk about what is so unique about the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Maybe we should start there. What is the gospel? Also known as, how can I have a right relationship with God? Right? What is the gospel? It's the good news. And why is it unique? Well, I'm going to take you through it. So, here's what the Bible tells us the good news really is. First, God created the world. He created the universe. He created us, each one of us. And he has a design, a good and perfect design for each one of us. Right? And that was great, but there was a problem. And that problem is me and what I do. Each one of us can say, yeah, I have sin. And that sin has taken me away from God's design. And so now that I'm separated, I have to land somewhere, and I land in brokenness. It's no longer God's design, it's brokenness. And so I've landed there, and now I really have a problem, because not only have I sinned and gone away from God's design, now I'm stuck in this sort of broken world and brokenness. And so we have all these kind of things that we do that try to get us out, right? We try to get out, we try to get out, and what are those things? There are things like religion and pleasure and philosophy, good works. But the problem is that brokenness is kind of like gravity, Right, And it keeps pulling us back. And all of those things that we do, religion and good deeds and pleasure and philosophy, they all lead us right back into brokenness. So now we're really stuck because all the things we try to do to get out of it, we can't do. Well, there's good news. And that's what the gospel is, is good news. Is that God said, I'm going to provide a way. And so he provided his son, Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus do? Jesus came to earth. He was God in the flesh, fully God, and he came to earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And then, he paid the penalty for us on the cross. 
and we'll talk about that more later, uh, justice was due. And he satisfied that justice for us on the cross. And then he rose again and defeated death on our behalf. And so now that he has done that, God has made that a free gift. And so really the gospel is this, is that we as people have a choice to turn and believe this. And when we do that, we have the opportunity to recover and pursue God's design. And so that's really just a short, what is that, like three minute summary there of the good news, right? What is the gospel? And so the gospel is unique. This is unique because there's no other worldview, there's no other value system, there's no other approach like it in the world. No other options are out there where God, the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe, reaches out to mankind. It's so important. It's so important. This is the most important message in the world. And so, it's no surprise that in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's focusing on this. He talks about the gospel. This is what he's talking about. So, I think you all probably have an outline here. We get your, your first blank on the outline Paul has a gospel authority, and he declares it right there in verses 1 and 2. And at the very beginning, he says, Paul, an apostle. Sort of like, I am the apostle. Well, what is an apostle? What is an apostle? Well, Paul was an apostle, but I think we kind of have to define that, right? And I think there's really kind of three parts to being an apostle in this context. First... An apostle is very simply, sort of definitionally, one who is sent. Now, this afternoon, I know we're, we're missing uh, right now a, a football game. But if you're like me, you've got your TiVo or your DVR running, and you're going to sit down this afternoon and watch it and skip through the commercials, and it's going to be great, right? And I'm going to sit in there probably with my sons, and I could say, Hey, Reeve, go upstairs and get me something to drink. And so Reeve has been sent to the kitchen to get me something to drink. Now, is he an apostle? No. He's one who is sent, but he's not an apostle. So this is not a complete definition, right? So there's a second part. He's sent, sent with a message, right? So Paul is an apostle. He's one who is sent with a message. I don't know if you can read that. It says contextual. So there is a context to his apostleship, and that is a message. He has a message. He's one who's sent with a message. So now if I say, hey, Reeve, go upstairs and, and tell your mom I'd like something to drink, right? <laughs> So then Reeve has been sent with a message, but is he an apostle? No, he's not an apostle, right? So there's a third part, and that third part is with authority. It's a positional thing. Now, I, I guess I could give him the authority to give me a drink, but I think that's where maybe that, that illustration breaks down. But here's Paul. Paul is one who is sent with a message with authority, And so it's really important, right, because if he doesn't talk about where his authority comes from, he's just a guy with a message that somebody sent, right? Like the the door-to-door salesman, right? That guy was sent with a message. Yeah. So what? He doesn't have any authority. But Paul has authority. Well, what is that authority and where did it come from? That authority came from God, not from humans. Paul says this right there in verse 1. He says, I was not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So who sent him? God. So it's important. We have to realize that here's Paul, 
he's a great preacher and he's a theologian, but it's not Paul the theologian versus some other theologian, right? Because then you just be like, well, I just kind of pick and choose, right? What makes Paul so special? Paul's authority came from God. His authority is greater than that of the other teachers who were teaching this church. Now, let's talk about authority for a minute. I have a picture here. This is my stamp. Anybody like to do stamping? Stamp project? That's not what this is. This is a legal stamp, right? Most of you, many of you know I'm an architect by profession. I am licensed to practice architecture in the state of Colorado. And so what this stamp indicates is that I have authority in the state of Colorado to produce drawings for construction. And so I use this stamp, I put it on drawings, I put it on letters, put it on other things. Why? And now why? Why do I have this authority? Well, the state has given it to me, right? And why did they give it to me? Well, because I, I got some degrees and I took some tests and I showed the other thing and this and that. Whatever. It doesn't matter. But I have this authority, right? Versus somebody who doesn't have this authority, right? And, and I find it, it often funny. Most people think that because there's Home Depot and Lowe's and you can go find floor plans on the internet that anybody can be an architect, right? Sometimes I call them the armchair architects. They're like an armchair quarterback. They're like, I can do that. And it's like, well, I suppose you can and there's things you can do, but you don't really have the authority to do that. The state has given you the authority, and in fact, you can get in a lot of trouble. If you don't have this authority, and you go out and produce things, and there's construction, and they get built, and there's problems, you can get in a lot of trouble for doing that, right? So, in the same way, Paul was commissioned by Jesus. He was given that authority. When did that happen? It was on the road to Damascus. We read about that in the book of Acts, right? And uh, he came face-to-face with Jesus, and Jesus said, I'm giving you the authority to do this. And so Paul has a doctrinal authority as it relates to the Galatians. Paul was not just another preacher. He had heard from God directly. And so even today, we, we as a church, we continue to defer to Paul and the apostles when it comes to matters of doctrine. We refer back to Scripture. We say, what does Scripture say And that's what we try to live by. Now, although his authority was not from men, it was from God, his authority was verified in plurality. In verse 2, Paul says, all the brothers with me. See, Paul was not a lone wolf apostle. He wasn't just running around saying, oh yeah, God told me to do this thing. We see later on in, in Galatians, and you can read about it in Acts, Paul was tested And approved by other church apostles in the early church in Jerusalem and elsewhere. There's this idea of safety in numbers. When you have safety in numbers, it gives you a confidence and a validation. We we try to follow this in our church uh, because we have a plurality of pastors, right? Uh, As pastors are rich and Brad and I, there's not a hierarchy, Right? I get asked that question a lot, and it's a great question because so many churches operate that way, but that's just not the way that we operate. They say, well, which, which associate pastor, Greg, are you? Or which, what is sort of your role? And uh, I always explain, no, we have a plurality of pastors where we all sit together, and there's, there's an equality, and we work together. And we model this as a church. We model this because it's all throughout the New Testament, the gospel accounts, Acts, these letters to the epistles. And a lot of times I sum it up this way for people. I know, I think, 
Rich told me this, I don't know where he got it from, but we sort of have this statement that we say, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And so that's what we try to do. We try to echo this idea of plurality here in our church. And so Paul, he had an authority. His authority came from God, not from man, but it was affirmed by the other apostles, right? And so why was it so important? Why did Paul really need to establish this authority? Well, there was a doctrinal crisis in this church in Galatia. And we'll talk about that more here in just a minute. So, in addition to Paul's authority, Paul says that he has a gospel message. Verses 3 to 5. says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he gets into the message. Who gave himself for our sins... So that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forevermore. So Jesus rescues us through his death. So what is death? Well, I think we all kind of know what death is, right? No, we die, right? But what is death? Well, it's really a payment that's due to us for our sins. Romans 6.23 calls it a wage. It says the wages of sin is death. Now, a lot of times people can get confused, right? They're like, oh, it's a wage and I'm, I'm, it's, it's owed to me, but what if I just don't deposit that check? Right? That's not what it is. It's really like a check that's on auto deposit. Anybody have auto deposit on their paycheck? It just like shows up in your account. It's great, right? I love it when that happens. We probably don't love it so much when it's sin, right? We've got to get paid death for sin. It's on auto deposit. We can't just avoid it. We can't just skip it. Nobody escapes. Nobody escapes the penalty of sin. To escape would be like a fugitive from justice, right? Have you guys ever noticed in the movies, like, fugitives never escape? <laughs> I can't think of any. Or they, like, get exonerated maybe. But no fugitive ever really escapes, right? I'm always kind of like... Oh gosh, man, he's going to take hostages? That never works out for you, right? You ever get that in movies? You're like, don't take hostages because you're not going to win that battle, right? Justice always finds, uh, finds the bad guy, even if it's in the sequel. The justice always comes about, right? And so nobody escapes that justice, but Jesus provides us a spiritual rescue, Right? So we do get to escape, but the penalty still has to be paid. And how is it paid? Well, it's this thing, we can call it the three S's. And it shows up right here in this verse. It's, it's really cool, right? So the first S, Jesus gave himself a sacrifice. Jesus gave himself. He was perfect. He did not deserve to die. And yet he sacrificed himself. Second S is substitution. Jesus gave himself for our sins. He substituted himself in our place. He said, let's take that, let's reroute that check, that paycheck of death. Let's send it to my account and send it to your account. And why did he do it? For salvation, so that he might rescue us. Rescue is a salvation. Jesus saves us and he saves us for a purpose. And so that's the spiritual rescue we get through Jesus' death. 
Jesus rescues us by grace as well as what Paul tells us here. He says, who called you? Jesus called you by the grace of Christ. And so what is grace? Well, there's really kind of three parts to grace here that I want to talk about. The first is that we are saved by God's initiative. God has initiated that. Remember our diagram from earlier? God reached down and put Jesus into play. And I think sometimes we forget it's not even just grace to be saved. It's grace to even want to be saved. Amen? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says this faith is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So even faith itself is a gift that God gives us that we should thank him for. We're saved by grace alone. Grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8, right there, it said, it is by grace you have been saved, not by works. There's no works going on there. It's not what we do. And that's really what distinguishes believing in Christ from other religions. We're not doing things to get there. Remember our circle? We do all that stuff to try to get out of the gravity of brokenness. And it all comes back, crashing back down into brokenness. Grace alone is what saves us and that distinguishes this belief. We're also saved because of Christ. Oh, I know a number of you have been coming, Brad mentioned discipleship groups, and we're kind of going through the class, and I just want to sort of reiterate something he said, is that everybody is welcome, whether you've come from the first week or you've never come before. We'd love for you to come and, and sit and listen, and we learn all kinds of great stuff on this, how to share this good news in a simple way, and it's just great. It, it, it just sort of washes us in God's word, and we get a chance to be together, and we get to like wave our arms and do hand motions and stuff. It's a lot of fun, Right? But remember, there's a couple things we're learning in that class about God, right? What is the, what is the first one? God is, what is this, somebody? Holy, right? It's like you got a hole in yourself. God is holy, right? And there's three parts to that. Pure, righteous, just, right? Just, okay. So there we're on the third one. God is just. God must punish our sin. He can't lay it aside, right? You can't just be like, uh, uh, never mind, right? There's a penalty that has to be paid. That check is cut. It has to go somewhere, right? I like to think about, think about sort of the, the worst sort of villain. I don't know if you want to think of like Hitler or somebody who's like really bad and they like get to the end of their life and they die and they got to stand before God. And if God was just like, yeah, never mind. It's all good. They're good. Whatever. I think we'd all be pretty upset, right? Like, no, the person has to face justice because they've committed horrible atrocities, well, the same thing is true for all of us. A single one of us dies and stands before God. We have to face justice as well. If we didn't face justice, God wouldn't be just. If he was just like, eh, never mind. That's not just. We need a just God and we have a just God. But the best part is that God is also merciful. God is merciful because he takes our place. He reroutes that check to his account not to ours. He takes our place. The justice, instead of being enacted upon us, was enacted upon Jesus. He stood in our place. Sometimes grace is defined as unmerited favor. Jesus standing in our place and taking the penalty is unmerited favor. Amen? Yeah. We don't deserve it. 
And so why was it important for Paul to establish this gospel message? He talked about his authority, and then he talked about the message. Why do you have to establish this message? Well, if we understand rescue and we understand grace, then we're going to understand what the Galatians' problem really was. And the Galatians had a gospel problem. Verses 6 to 9. Paul just again, he just dives right into it. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Nothing quite like diving into a letter and telling somebody they're accursed, right? As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So the problem, the Galatians' problem, is they had a perversion of the gospel. Well, what was that perversion? Well, we're going to learn about that more specifically, and we're going to get into that in the weeks to come specifically. But to kind of give you a sneak peek, um, one thing to, to understand that it's not, it's not an issue of, was Jesus the Messiah? It's also not an issue of, was Jesus God? It's also not an issue of, was Jesus raised from the dead? Like, those are all really key doctrines. But the Galatians didn't have a problem with that. The people who were teaching them weren't, sort of teaching them that those things weren't true. They were teaching them that they were true. You go, well, those all seem like really key solid doctrines. That's good. But well, what was the problem? Well, the problem was these teachers were teaching them that they had to add things to the gospel. Specifically circumcision in the ceremonial Jewish law. We could kind of call these people Judaizers. They kind of wanted to take the Christian faith and add sort of a, a, a Judaism on top of it. Right? They wanted to get these Gentiles to adhere to Old Testament, Old Testament ceremonial laws. Really kind of, they just wanted to add on good works to the gospel of Jesus. Now, on the face, that might not sound so bad, right? What's wrong with good works? That's good. It's good to do good stuff and good things. More good works are better, right? Well, that's the point. Paul writes this letter to really show us what's wrong with his way of thinking. And so he tells us, that a modified gospel is not the gospel. Because, I don't know how many like college football, college sports, ever heard Ohio State University referred to as the Ohio State University? I don't know why that is. Like every, isn't it the University of Colorado? But they don't say that. I don't know why. But I like that emphasis. The, when we talk about the gospel. The gospel. Different from the gospel or gospel, right? So we'll probably use that a little bit as we go along. Jesus gave us a standard, though, of what the gospel is. And so we got to look to Jesus alone. See, Jesus did not say, I, I, most everybody knows John 3.16, right? Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, Jesus did not say, for God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him and obeys my law shall not perish but have eternal life. I right? didn't say that. Right? He also didn't say, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
However, he should obey my law in this life in order to have my favor and blessing. Right? That's not John 3.17. Right? He said, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Period. That's what Jesus said. And so that leads us to some equations. And we'll probably refer back to these equations here as we go along. You take Jesus, the message of Jesus, and you add nothing to it. And you get everything. But if you take Jesus and his message and you add something to it, you get nothing. When the gospel is modified, it is no longer the gospel. Paul is insistent in this letter. We must stick to the gospel and the gospel alone. So why? Why was Paul so uncompromising? Why? Like I said, oh, good works, it's alright, you know. Well, three reasons here. Verses 6, 7, and 8. Verse 6. Theology affects our experience. Deserting him who called you is what he says. Paul is really saying this. When you abandon the gospel, you abandon Christ. See, theology could really be defined as our understanding of God, right? How do I understand God? That's my theology. So if, if the gospel is central to who Jesus was, right? John 3.16, whoever believes in him, if it's central to who Jesus was and what he did, then if I start to think about that centrality different than Jesus did, I'm in trouble, my theology of God is really different than what Jesus intended my theology of God to be, right? So that's why it's important when we modify these things, even when it seems like it's in a good way, it's going to affect our experience. He goes on in verse 7 and he says, A slight change equals a total loss. A different gospel, which is really not another. A slight change to the gospel makes it not the gospel. Some of you, I don't know, some of you are like in science, right? Or you like science. You only believe in science, right? I, I'm not sure I totally understand this principle, but I read about this sort of analogy, right? Like a vacuum. Not like a vacuum cleaner, right? But like a vacuum is like the absence of oxygen, right? Is that right? Somebody nod their head and say that's true, right? So you can't really have like a partial vacuum, Right? You add some air to it, it's no longer a vacuum. Right? The gospel is kind of the same way. It either is or it isn't. Adding or subtracting anything to the gospel makes you lose the gospel in its entirety. He goes on in verse 8 and he says, Modification brings condemnation. So it's not just, oh, we modified it. It's a problem. It brings condemnation, which is the whole thing we we're trying to avoid by following the gospel anyway. He says, a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Paul is really saying this. He's saying, when you alter the gospel, it's a serious business. Because you're playing with eternity. You're playing with somebody's salvation. And they're standing before God. Their reconciliation before God, right? It's not just merely like, someone's like, oh, I played with the gospel. Oops, I, I kind of missed it. I was close. Oh well. No, the consequences are eternal. If you miss the gospel and you don't get it right, 
you're going to miss the mark. In Matthew 7, Jesus refers to heaven, the way to heaven, as a small gate, as a narrow road. Paul is really reinforcing what Jesus said when he, when he shares this with the church in Galatians. So that's their gospel problem. So how does that really apply to us? What can we take away from that? What we can really understand is that the gospel is unique. But we have to be careful because the gospel is readily corrupted. Well, why is it unique? As I said before, it is rescue. Notice we have that in our slogan of our church. Love, rescue, transform, rescue. There is a rescue that Jesus provides for us. God reaches out to us in the person of Jesus. And then it's also unique because it is grace. There is no other worldview where we get unmerited favor from God. And yet we have to be careful because it is readily corrupted. Well, how is it corrupted? How do we see that? Okay, so these Galatians are talking about ceremonial law and okay, no one's talking about ceremonial law here. Like what what goes on? Well, Churches will corrupt this all the time, right? Some churches will teach that salvation comes through this belief, plus surrendering your life. They say, oh, you've got you to keep a strong faith in order to stay saved. And the Bible says you are saved through faith. These churches will teach you're saved because of your faith. You see how there's a slight difference? One is the gospel, the other is not. There's a corruption. Other churches will teach that your theology, what you think about God, doesn't really matter as long as you're good and loving. Good works are all it really takes. And really, most of these places, it's only certain good works, right? You can kind of hang on to some other sins and, and you'll be all right. And so really... The sum of that is that Jesus' death wasn't really necessary when he didn't really have a penalty to pay for you. <clears throat> and so that's a corruption because that's not the gospel. Still other churches will teach you've got to have a strict adherence to customs. They'll like create and maintain these really narrow standards of things like for clothing and food, your relationships, your time management and that sort of thing, right? And that's adding something to what Jesus said. And so that's a corruption as well. And yet I don't want to point fingers at, a, at other churches necessarily. I think we've got to point fingers into our own lives. That we ourselves, individually, can have corruptions. So ask yourself this. Have you ever beat yourself up over a sin? Have you ever felt like, man, God must not love me because blank. Have you ever done that? I've done that. I've done that a lot. But that's a corruption of the gospel. When I think that way, I've corrupted the gospel. What about this? On the other side, have you ever allowed yourself too much leeway with sin? You kind of thought, ah, God will forgive me for the sin I'm about to commit. Well, that also is a corruption, right? That's not the gospel. When I do that, I'm not living in light of the gospel. And so all of these things, whether churches teach them or we teach them to ourselves... They're deviations, they're perversions, they're distortions of the gospel. And so as I close here, I thought, we sort of talk about that, we talk about his authority, his message, the problem, kind of lay that groundwork for where we're going to go in coming weeks. 
And so where, where really are we going? What is our goal? And so my heart here, as we, as we go into this new phase as a church, uh, this new phase of two, two permanent locations, is that we here at the Firehouse Church would have a right understanding. That we would have a right theology and a right application of the gospel. Somebody, a friend of mine, asked me this week, I, it was just such a great question, he said, what makes your church different? And I, I don't really like those questions because I don't really like to think too much about other churches specifically and like, what are they doing and what are we doing? And um, I just, I'm just so humbled because I think God has worked and wants to work right here in our midst, in your lives. And I'm so excited to get to see him doing that and I don't know what makes us different, but I know that we really, we have a desire and an intention and a mission to focus on the gospel. And that probably at least makes us different from anyone who would corrupt it, right? Now, you've heard us talk, and I think even Rich might have even talked about it last week, these ideas of gospel groups, right? We had small groups, and right now we're going through the seed of discipleship groups, and our goal is to have kind of tentatively calling them gospel groups. So what is a gospel group? It's an opportunity for you to get together with other people from this church and go into your sphere of influence with the gospel and live out the gospel and share the gospel and share this great reconciliation that we have with others who don't have it. That's the goal and that's what we're going to try to do. And so I hope, I know a number of you are thinking about it and praying about it and our, our goal is you know, January that we'd be doing that. We'd have several gospel groups and we'd stand up here and we'd have these announcements and everyone would be like checking their time even more than they do with all our announcements on Sunday morning. Like, oh, there's all these things. This church is doing all this stuff. Because it's people with a heart for the good news to get it out, right? But to do that, each one of us has got to have the gospel right in our own hearts. Amen? Amen. We've got to have the gospel right in our motivations. The gospel will properly motivate us to do that. We also have to have the gospel right so that we can effectively share it with others. That's part of why we're doing what we're doing in discipleship groups right now. It's giving everybody an opportunity to, to be exposed and washed in a good way to share this and to understand it. And so we subtitle this series A New Gospel Life. And so we're going to see as we go along that everything we do has got to fall in line with the gospel. And that there's a freedom in that. And so let's go back to that original slide here. I saw some people furiously scribbling it down. Now's your chance to finish scribbling it down, right? Look at those things, that stuff coming out of brokenness at the top. Good deeds and religion and pleasure and philosophy. Those things are not the gospel. The gospel is not those things. The gospel is turning and believing, which empowers us to recover and pursue God's design. Paul was adamant about sticking to the gospel, and so at the Firehouse Church, we also are adamant about sticking to the gospel. We are not going to be a church that secularizes the gospel or tries to make it progressive or discards different sins or promotes different kinds of outward physical appearance standards. No, we're going to be a church that seeks and promotes and strives to live 
in the unique gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. God, I thank you that you have, have uh, saw fit to, to give us a, a unique means of reconciliation with you. God, of, of all of the questions we could ask in our life, the most important one any of us could ask is, how can I be reconciled with the creator of the universe? And every single one of us realizes that we have a penalty that has to be paid. Justice has to be served upon our own life, on our own sins, on the own wrong deeds that we've committed. God, I thank you that you sent Jesus Christ into the world to live a sinless life, to die on the cross in our place, and to rise again and defeat death so that you could pay that penalty, so that you could reroute that check, those wages of sin that are due to us, you placed on him. And yet, God, we recognize that we have to receive that. We have to receive that gift. We have to accept the good news, the gospel. And it's as simple as saying, Lord, Lord, I recognize that Jesus paid the penalty for my sins. I accept your forgiveness that you offer through him. And I invite you to be my savior and the Lord of my life. God, help us as a church to walk in the gospel, in the good news. Lord, as we head into this new season of, of meeting in two locations, God, and as I think about this location and trying to have my heart and our, our heads aligned here, God, I pray that we would all align to the good news, to the gospel, that we would understand it, that we would live it, that it would come out of us, and that that reconciliation that we have with you would be infectious. And that it would draw others to you. God, we ask that you would be drawing people who are seeking, people who feel like they're far off, that you would draw them to you. God, use us, Lord. We just want to be your vessels, your tools to accomplish that mission. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for placing us here in this place, in this time, in this season. I thank you for each person who has joined with us and who is here, Lord, for the new folks who are checking things out. God, pray your blessing would be on them. We love you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.